everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Ben Williams today of several notable things that I could mention, my favorite of which right now would be author of the great book, The Faith of John's Gospel, um, which is available on Amazon. There's links on our website. Uh, I think there's a link in your author description down at the bottom of our page. I cannot tell you how many people have let me know how much they've enjoyed that book, Ben. So thank you, you for writing. Follow Cole to restaurants. He leaves it behind at tables and stuff. It's, it's just you know. I haven't been using it as a tip places. It hasn't taken tracked status yet, but I'm almost there. Yeah, well, uh, but I have given that book away so many times. I know that a lot of our listeners have read it. If you have not, it's just the perfect Bible study for a group. Uh, a lot of people I've talked to have done it with their quiet times. It's really, really good. I know you can't say all those things, Ben, but I want everybody to know. <laughs> how oh, great thanks. it is. So thanks for writing that. But today we're going to talk about a different book and one that you suggested and that I thoroughly enjoyed reading and uh, was really glad that you brought it to my attention. It's called A Church Called Tove. Um, and this all depends on how you pronounce the Hebrew here. So, so how, are we going to have a definitive pronunciation of Tove or Tov? We need tov, to get uh, Tov. Really, there's Grant you on to tell us several something. several different schools of thought here on yeah. how to pronounce this Hebrew word. Yeah, but it's by Scott McKnight and uh, Laura Berenger. Scott McKnight, a pretty pretty famous New Testament scholar in his own right. Uh, he teaches at Northern Seminary, and Laura Berenger. I don't know exactly. I think they are just really good friends. They went to Willow together for a while. Um, she's a teacher. She's a school teacher, and I think they're just good friends. And she brings a great perspective to the book. Um, Scott McKnight wrote the preface for the book I published a couple of years ago, and uh, people assume I must know him. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we've exchanged three emails, so yeah, we're really tight. I know well, Scott you McKnight definitely, real well. You definitely know him then. You definitely know him. <laughs> I uh, reviewed one of his books for Presbyterian Journal a couple of years ago called Pastor Paul that was pretty good. Oh, yeah, uh, I, I like his stuff. I read and recommend a lot of his stuff, and even when I disagree, I find him helpful and thoughtful. Um, and that's about all I can ask for in a book, in my opinion. Yeah. Totally. That's been my experience with him as well. And one of the reasons when you suggested this, I was, I was so looking forward to reading this book. I'll, I'll, if you guys haven't seen this book, I'll give you a little background. It, it's a book that reflects on the last few years, especially in evangelicalism, where you've seen not just a lot of high-profile pastors burning out or leaving churches, what you've seen is the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, uh, cases of abuse. You have the huge, huge report on the Catholic Church, but you also had a, a big report on the Baptist Church. Yeah. Um, you've had several pastors, most notably in this book, Bill Hybels of Willow Creek, who have been accused of uh, different levels of sexual impropriety, we would say, some of them harassment, some of them abuse, and, um, you know, Willow Creek is kind of the the church that's in the background of this book, but there's a lot of examples of this. And so looking at that landscape, one of the things I think this book is, is really helpful for is to look and say, okay, there's more to it than just the pastor. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, obviously they bear the responsibility. They're the person that uh, did whatever issue we're talking about. But a lot of times, the further you get into this, the more you see a culture and a leadership group around them, who either enabled on the one hand or covered up afterwards on the other. And so the book comes from a, a, an honest place of saying, how do we make sure this doesn't happen anymore? Not just uh, from the standpoint of how do we have pastors that don't do this and spiritual yeah. leaders that don't do this, but how do we as other leaders in the church uh, create environments, create cultures 
uh, create Tove, which we'll talk about as kind of the theme of the book, in such a way that uh, we are healthy leaders and we have a healthy leadership community. So that's kind of the perspective that they're writing from. Then what would you add to that? Yeah, I'd agree. It's there's always the temptation to say it's a little reactionary because it, it's a reaction to something that happened. What they what they reacted to is very real and warrants concern. Um, my my overall sense of the book is that it's a pretty good reaction, and then my critique is going to be that um, you can create new problems through reaction, and it's, it's always a challenge to discern where we've made things better or just made things differently worse or mm-hmm. differently bad. Um, but I, I think overall, yeah, it's a good summary of it. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it is a it is a helpful response. There's several of these books that I think have been good. The other one I've read recently is called Lead by Paul David Tripp. And it's okay. also about building a culture of transparency, building a culture of health, um, you know, insulating leaders with accountability, the right kind of accountability, uh, but also trust. And, you know, I, that's why I think this is a good response. Of course, the criticism to response is almost always is overcorrection, like you mentioned. Yeah. And I think in some places they've overcorrected here, uh, but that's that's part of the process. I think that's part of the healthy process of having these discussions. So I, maybe we can go through and just hit on some of the high points of the book, go through some pros and cons. Um, you know, by way of summary, the book opens and it has a, a first section kind of detailing negative church cultures. So these are, um, you know, ways that you can spot troublesome signs. And they do four chapters at the beginning, forming and deforming a church's culture, mostly focusing on signs to look for uh, in a bad culture. So that would be things like cover-ups, that would be uh, toxicity, and we'll, we'll get into discussing that, that word later. Um, you know, responding to criticism, uh, false narratives, so spin. One of the things they're very sensitive to is how churches spin different things when they communicate yeah. with their uh, members. And, you know, one of the things they get into that I thought was really helpful is just the toxic culture that some individual pastors create, uh, both out of their own insecurities, their uh, needs, their sin areas that haven't been met. And, you know, of course, having served with a lot of really great pastors uh, in my life, the, the senior pastors that I've served under, you know, and respecting them, you don't want to get too quick to, to, post this, you know, all over every pastor, you know, just because they have some flaws, but really getting down into what are the signs of a, of a culture that, that reflects narcissism, that reflects an inability to be corrected. Uh, somebody who has a bunch of yes men around them, you know, just try, trying to look at those things. So that, that opening section, I think is one of diagnosis. Yeah. I, I was reading and I'm, I'm not gonna be able to source it, but I was reading another book on the church just the other day that made a reference to the idea that Rome turned the church into an empire and America turned the church into a corporation. Mm. And in the same way, the popes then, among other things, suffered from all the flaws of being an emperor. Uh, The modern American pastor can suffer from all the flaws of being a a CEO, Mm -hmm. which narcissism, greed, you know, personal cult, you know, all of that can happen and it frequently does in a corporation. And when that's your baseline model, uh, that can happen. Again, that's a big brush. It's not fair to every large church pastor or small church pastor or minister, but uh, that's definitely a, a fair assessment of what sometimes happens and maybe too often happens. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And I think a lot of times big churches are pegged with, you know, kind of the toxic culture moniker. And certainly in this book, the churches that are pegged as bad examples are big churches, partly because they're they're more notorious, uh, partly because they focus mostly on Willow Creek. And if you're going to focus on one church in a book like this, Willow is a great place to focus. It is the church that kind of uh, set the tone for the church as corporation, you know, who is our customer and what do they want? Uh, the church growth movement did corporatize the church, and that didn't always lead to bad outcomes. But if you were going to find somebody who did uh, cover up about as poorly as possible uh, in kind of an abusive uh, environment for uh, people coming forward with accusations, Willow Creek did about as bad a job as you can possibly do. To this day, I don't think Bill Hybels has apologized. I don't think he's repented. The elders that protected him have all resigned. I mean, it was just a disaster. And, and one of the things about this book that's really important is that can happen anywhere. Yeah. You can have toxic cultures at tiny little churches and big churches, and you can have a healthy culture in a small church or a big church. The reason that, you know, a story like that is so notorious is because it's covered in the Chicago newspapers. It's covered on, um, you know, there's a huge fallout on social media and there's a lot of people affected too. That's at the end of the day. One of the things I really loved about this book was this is not just about, uh, the corporate culture of churches or the healthy culture of churches. This is, if our mission is to disciple people, to love and serve people, then every time something goes wrong, people get hurt by the church. And, you know, that's what we want to avoid at all costs. So, uh, you know, the, the, the Willow story kind of hangs in the background, but it, it's true that it can happen anywhere. Um, and uh, good cultures can happen anywhere. Yeah, I think what is challenging about places like Willow is that it's, on the one hand, what uh, a lot of smaller churches would like to emulate. I mean, it, it looks from one point of view to be a success story for a church. And so if it fails, what does that say about all the th- folks who were wishing they could be that? Um, right. And then the other is from the other end that I, it, you, you know, full well, there's a whole industry out there of church hate publicity that just Mm -hmm. there's no story juicier than the downfall of something that looked like it was successful in Christendom. Um, Right. That's just proof to the the meta narrative of our times that Christianity is bad anyway. And so it hurts us like on all levels. And Mm -hmm. again, right down, don't forget the personal level of real human individuals in these churches that are hurt. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's a great point too. This book is a positive book for the most part. I mean, you have to talk about some of the negative, but it is a let's do something constructive rather than just write a whole book about tearing the church down, which, you know, there is a whole cottage industry of people who've made what I can only guess is millions of dollars attacking the church. And I think that's despicable. I think there are ways to, you know, talk about the church and and call it to repentance and all of that. But at the end of the day, if you're not, you know, jumping in to actually do something, the church is not an arbitrary uh, idea that somebody came up with. You know, it, it is Christ's uh, promise that the church will prevail and the gates of hell won't stand against it. And so, you know, it is frustrating now that there is a there's a whole industry of people who who kind of live to tear down the church. But a lot of times you find out are not working for churches. They're not, you know, volunteering at churches. They don't even go to church a lot of the time. And it's, you know, that that that's the frustrating part. And I I commend 
Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, because I think they are committed to serving churches and seeing flourishing churches and pastoring. And of course, Scott McKnight training people to pastor at seminary. So that's a really nice feature of any critique is to say, okay, yeah, but, but where do we go from here? It's really easy to tear things down. It's very hard to build things. And the second half of this book focuses on how do you build a culture? So there's, there's seven chapters of creating a goodness culture. And this is where you get into the heart of the book. This is why it's called a church called Tov or Tov is because they want to build that environment. So explain for, for those of us who have forgotten our Hebrew, uh, why, why do they call it this? Uh, so this is on my pro and con list. This, I have a love-hate relationship with the title. But on the one hand, uh, tov is the Hebrew word for good. And uh, what Scott McKnight wants to say is that there is a more holistic vision of good, maybe even an inexpressibly beautiful vision of good that if you use that word tov, you would capture uh, as opposed to the word good. Um the philosopher in me, and probably you as well, wants to say good's a perfectly good word. Like mm-hmm. uh, I, I wasn't confused by that. And maybe, maybe we need better sermons on the word good, and then we wouldn't have to replace it with a Hebrew word to let people know that what we mean is good. When Jesus says, uh, no one is good but God, I didn't need to say, but what he meant was tove or something. You know, it's like it's yeah. this robust, beautiful, moral ethical goodness uh, that God is. And yeah, there, there are some Hebrew words that don't, that are almost inexpressible. Uh, chesed would be one. And there's a few others that you just, you have mm-hmm. a hard time finding a good English parallel, but I don't, I don't know, just from the ethics point of view, I think good um, guys since Aristotle have been asking, what is the good? And we knew what that meant. And that's what we're looking for. Um, we probably make it way too complicated. And I, so I, I'm no real beef with Tov uh, as a word. That's fine. Uh, it's just sometimes I think to put a cool title on it, a, a church called good, probably we wouldn't sell as well. Uh, there's no intrigue there, but that's, that's the message is that there is an idea of actual goodness that is created um, by the gospel, by the work of God in the world. And it's supposed to exist in his church. If it doesn't exist in his church, it doesn't exist anywhere because that's where God wants it to be and to flourish from the goodness in the rest of the world comes out of the good of the church, which comes out of the goodness of Christ and his spirit. Um, so that's, that's a great message. And I think we should just have better sermons about good, whereas we use the word good for everything. Oh, that's a good idea. That's, that's good mm-hmm. enough. Uh, good on you. I mean, we use it for basically an equivalent of the word nice. And I think that's maybe maybe the point he's trying to drive at. This isn't a church called okay or a church called acceptable. This is the higher quality, the divine attribute good. And that's that's something to be to aspire to. Yeah, I think you're right on that. It, 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 at first, it struck me a little bit as faddish, you know, because we've gone through this with other words. Hesed is a good one, which means loving kindness. Yeah. And that's hard to express. And that, that one is really a uh, technical kind of term, even in the Old Testament a little bit. It's yeah. packed with meaning. But you remember Shalom was a big thing, you know, yeah. several years ago. It was like, no, Shalom is not peace. just peace. It's yeah. wholeness and completeness. And that's kind of what Tov means, too. I mean, yeah. true goodness is wholeness and completeness and it is when god looks out over creation and says that is good 
that's that's the word that he used. So if we want to build a church culture that reflects that, it, it has to start by reflecting God's character, has to re- start by reflecting, you know, God the, the things is the way that God designed them. But we're also dealing with the fact that uh, these Tove churches are filled with sinful human beings. Yeah. And in, in a lot of ways, this book is, well, how do you maintain a good culture even in the midst of a sinful and broken world and a sinful and broken church? Um, what, what are some of the pros and cons then as we move into this uh, kind of constructive vision for the church that you saw? So the, uh, there's two key concepts. One is Tov, this goodness, and the other is culture. The idea that within a church, um, you don't just have individuals operating and you don't just have doctrines operating. You actually have a culture, which is almost a personal influence to itself. Um, it's, it's bigger than individuals and it takes on a life of its own. Um, there's other ways of saying that, um, church polity used to be the fun way to say it, but your culture probably captures more and is easier Mm -hmm. to understand. Uh, and and I think that's a, a legitimate point that especially in a lead ministry position or an elder possession, any of those kind of leadership roles, you're not just making decisions, you are creating the circumstances under which decisions are made. Mm-hmm. Not just creating programs and ministries, you're creating the circumstances and the rules and the values under which those things operate. And uh, you, two guys can do, make all the same decisions and all the same ministry initiatives and have different results because of the methods they use to accomplish that. And so I think that's a very valuable point on my pro list for the book is how how are we teaching ourselves to make these decisions and how are we teaching the next group of leaders this is how it's done um, because it, once you do it culture has inertia where it just kind of keeps moving under its own power and reversing a, a cultural mood or standard is you know it's it's murder I mean it's 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 really a chore you're almost good enough, just go ahead and replant a church somewhere, then to to completely reverse the culture is a huge challenge. Uh, It takes a lot of time to even make subtle changes. So just being conscientious about if we did it this way all the time, what would that mean? Mm -hmm. Culture is not a pragmatic word. Pragmatism is, well, this will work now. Culture is if we did it this way all the time, what would we become? Um, And and that's a great question to ask. Mm -hmm. My con for that is don't use this superhuman, supernatural entity called culture as a scapegoat out of personal responsibility. So I'm going to blow you away with an Augustine quote now. Bad times, hard times, this is what people keep saying, but let us live well and times shall be good. We are the times, such as we are, such are the times. Wow. Just replace the word times with culture, right? If you want a better culture, be better. You're, you're part of that. That's, if that's not the parables of Jesus in a nutshell, of you know that we could put a little leaven in the, the granary, or we could, we could have a big impact from a small place, um, mustard seed kind of faith. I mean, that, that message that you could influence a culture that at the end of the day, it's, it's a fundamental Christian belief that goodness, being a characteristic of God, is more powerful than any other influence. So I don't have to have a five versus five ratio of good and bad 
if you just give me one good person, he's better than 10 bad people. <laughs> he can overcome a lot of bad culture if you work at it. Um, I know 11 goes both ways and influence goes that way. But I just, I, I wouldn't want anyone to read this book and use it as a scapegoat for, well, there was a bad culture and so I couldn't do anything. And my bad behavior and my mistakes are all the result of this culture. And I'm going to say the same thing about the word toxic. Like to you can have a toxic culture and you can also scapegoat a culture and say, well, it's really toxic. Hey, you're, you're part of that. You know, we are all mm -hmm. part of the culture and we shape it. Well, and this gets to one of the core tensions in the book that I think they navigate pretty well, but it's just a hard tension, no matter how you put it. And that is group identity and action and individual identity and action. So yeah, on the one hand, your culture does have an inertia to it. If you, you know, if it's, it's like the moving stream, you're going to move, especially even if you stand still, you're going to move. And I mean, it's, it goes back to the Peter Drucker, the famous uh, culture strategy for lunch. I mean, it is the it, it is the moving force of your church, uh, of any organization. But at the end of the day, individuals are still responsible for their behavior. Yeah. You know, and, and individual leaders and individual people at churches are still responsible for what they do. And they have a part in shaping culture. They also have a part in responding to culture. You know, so I would say one of the lessons of the book is culture is inertia, but it is not deterministic. You know, it is it's yes. possible to change your culture and it's possible to stand up to your culture and it's possible to do bad things in a good culture and do good things in a bad culture. So the point is understanding that there are forces beyond just, uh, I like the way you framed it, the decisions that you make. It's your presence as a leader and as a leadership team, the way that things are done, the reputation of the place, all of those things are cultural, uh, your values that get projected but are not spoken. All those are cultural things, but they're not deterministic things. Um, and, good, and that's one of the issues. Good reference would be go reread uh, Revelation 2 and 3 and the letters to the churches. How many of those churches, it looked like, had some culture issues? Uh, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Thyatira with, we have a, a woman named Jezebel who's teaching my servants to commit adultery. Sounds like we have a culture problem there. <laughs> um, but Jesus doesn't excuse anyone. And at the same time, he doesn't, have, he doesn't even tell anybody to leave the church. He says, you guys can fix that. And in mm -hmm. fact, I'm going to lay no other burden on you until you do. Like, fix that. Change the way you're addressing that issue. And... And I think there's a way to say, yeah, there is a culture problem. I, I think you can read the book of 1 Corinthians and say, wow, that's a culture problem there. Um, but Paul's suggestion isn't either abandon it, blame it, uh, dismiss it, cancel it. It's here's 16 chapters on how to fix it. And when that's over, I've got book number two coming. I mean, mm -hmm. there's things you can do selflessly and sacrificially to change your culture and maybe it only takes a few people doing right to make a difference. So that's, that's yeah, important. That's a, I think that's a great point and a good parallel to a lot of what we see. Because, yeah, I'm, I can't think of a single church in the New Testament that doesn't have some kind of culture issue going on. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the pros that I saw in the book is responding to abuse. Uh, I think they did a great job of saying, you know, as a church, you should be committed to a culture of truth. Yeah. And that truth is going to be really inconvenient sometimes. But, uh, you know, it's easy for church leaders to get defensive and there are reasons to get defensive sometimes, mm -hmm. but there, there are, you know, it's easy for church leaders to get defensive. It's easier for church leaders to spin. It's easy to, for church, uh, leadership teams and elders to basically enlist like a PR campaign when something's gone wrong and 
try to smooth things out. But, you know, the truth is what really transforms both in the individual life and in the community. And so as churches, we want to nurture a culture of truth and openness. Now, the, the, the con side of that is I think there is there are definitely places where there was a little bit more nuance that could have been uh, incorporated into the book. So, for example, there are just some things that your elders are not going to be able to share with the congregation in real time uh, because either they're, uh, you know, sensitive pastoral issues that can't be disclosed. Sometimes this is the one area I thought they just completely left out that would have been really helpful. They, they come down hard on non-disclosure agreements. And I think there's, I think there's good reason to do that. But the problem is when it comes to abuse, you know, the right thing for the church to do is to report the abuse to the authorities, uh, whether it's, you know, abuse against minors or something like that. And they come down hard on some churches that tried to handle that with internal church discipline. Uh, You know, know, when a child is abused, you have a legal obligation in most states, uh, if not every state to report it. The problem, though, is they then say that you have to have a big church meeting and name, you know, the people that have done the actions, what they did and all that. And a lot of those times when something is developing legally, you actually cannot say anything about what's going on. And so there's tough conversations you have to have. Where you say, hey, we, we cannot say right now, uh, but I want you to trust that we have referred it to the right people and the right thing's going to happen. So there are areas of discretion. And then there are areas of legality where the church can't say everything that's going on. And those are usually in really bad situations. Yeah. But with that caveat aside, I love the emphasis here on not striking a defensive posture, striking an openness posture. We want to investigate. We want to honor the people that are involved here, uh, but we also want to get to the bottom of it. And it strikes you a little bit different as a church leader to hear that because that's not at all our nature, uh, just as sinful human beings, uh, to expose everything to the light. But I really thought this was one of the strong points of the book. I think um, because people in leadership positions are so often the target of kind of nonsense complaints that we get into a, ha- you don't talk about culture, you develop a habit of responding with a defense because, and I'm just leveling with people out there listening to the podcast who may not be in ministry, in a given ministry life, like 99% of the complaints against a minister come from a place of either ignorance or misinformation that someone just didn't know something. And I'll, they'll say, hey, what about this? I'll answer it and they go, oh, well, that makes sense. And and so you just kind of get in a habit of I'm never wrong. I can always defend Mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. And so when one actually lands and you're like, oh, yeah, that that actually is true. I've done something bad or my associate has done something bad. Your default is still that defensive posture um, because people complain a lot uh, and, and you just kind of get used to responding that way. And that's one of the dangers is how do you have thick enough skin to hold off nonsense and still have a tender heart to respond to actual sin yeah. uh, in your own life or in your peers. And that, that's a challenge. I like what you said about the, the openness, um, but at the same time, discretion that um, a church, here's an unpopular opinion. A, a church isn't actually a democracy. Like that's not a biblical concept uh, ever. Uh, I think you can have congregationalists are going to come after you. No complaints. Hey, I'm a congregationalist. Like I I love the idea that uh, we're going through an elder selection process right now and it's congregation led, like it's directed in that way, but the result will be 
people in a leadership position mm-hmm. who are going to lead um, because you can't have every member of the church as informed as they need to be to be a and as they need to be to be a leader which is why when you read the pastorals it says there are some qualities that leaders need and those are the people who should be leading and uh that means also they may have to have the wisdom to keep some things to themselves it's going to be rare and it shouldn't be for selfish purposes or for self-preservation of the leadership that's the key it can never be used it, it can be used to protect a person from harm it can't be used to continue harm or to allow the flourishing of sin. That's a great way to put it. I, yeah, I think all leaders, church leaders especially, but all leaders uh, and especially pastors should live in such a way that they have nothing to fear from the truth. Yeah. Um, and so in a, in a situation where something has happened that needs to be investigated, man, you want to be in a spot where you can say, hey, open the floodgates, figure out what's going on. We want to know. But that doesn't prohibit you sometimes from knowing that the wisest thing is not to share everything at every moment. Um, you know, and that, that, that goes all the way down to pastoral counseling. That's one of the unique burdens of a pastor is, you know, a lot of things about people and you're walking through a lot of things about people that you have their confidence and their trust that they're going to stay with you. That's what makes the whole thing work. And so pastoring is, is one, is, is a a role of discretion. It's one of trust. It's one of wisdom. And like you said, that should always be used to love people well, to shepherd well, um, to preserve people's trust, never to hide or continue doing something wrong. Um, And I think that protection versus cover up uh, when you're making a decision of how much transparency is a really good matrix. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, of the chapters that they include here, I think the one that resonated with me most is the people first, building a people first culture. And the reason is because I think it is very easy the longer you go uh, as a church leader, and this is true in small groups, it's true in Sunday schools, it's true as senior pastors, to spend most of your time thinking about the the machine, you know, thinking about running the place. And it's easy to get sidetracked. And sometimes it's, it's easier just to do, to run the church than it is to tend to and shepherd the people. And I think that's a great anecdote for, or antidote to a lot of uh, pastoral sins is, you know, people come first. The church is about the people. The Great Commission is about people. It's about presenting everyone mature in Christ. That is the role of an elder is at the end of the day, you're going to give account, not for all the very good and necessary stuff. You're going to give account for the souls of your people. And if that's your focus, it keeps you from drifting into a lot of the things that they described in this book. And I thought that was a really strong chapter, great reminder that uh, what we're really here to do is love people and shepherd people and preach the truth to people, you know, and we create programs to, to create environments for people, you know, but if that stays the goal and the leaders stay close to the people, it becomes very hard to drift off into some of these other uh, ditches that pastors fall into. One of the descriptions in Second Peter chapter 2 of the false teacher is that he turns people into merchandise, hmm. like they, they become a commodity. And again, back to that corporate vision of the church, if, if the people stop being people and start being a, a stock that we trade in or a quantity or a commodity, uh, then we've we've lost everything. That's that's maybe more than doctrine that is the distinction between a false teacher and a, tre- a teacher of truth 
is how they view the person that they're reaching and their motives. Yeah. Right. And that really strikes you in these cases of abuse too. It's like, no, this is, you know, abuse is not a PR problem. This is the thing that made me the most upset about the way the Catholic church began to handle yeah. some of these accusations is no, the, the problem is not that the report broke. The problem is that this happened. Yeah. You know, the, the, the problem isn't that your reputation is going to be sullied. The problem is people have been abused and, yeah. you know, for a church, it's like, yeah, the commodification makes you think, oh my gosh, what's our reputation going to be like, or, you know, yeah. what future, future ministry opportunities can be like, it's like, no, the most important thing is the person who's been hurt. How, and about, uh, how about King Saul in the day of Samuel, who, who says to Samuel, um, yeah, you're right. I did it. But could you justify me in the eyes of the people? Like right. the concern is about the outcome of the kingdom, of the machine, of the dynasty, and not about personal morality and obligation and responsibility. Whereas David, who, you know, by reasonable standards, you'd say his sins are far greater than Saul. Mm -hmm. And yet his response is vastly different. It's about his obligation before God. God will take care of the kingdom, but I've sinned, you know, and that was the question. Yeah. Well, what, what about some cons? Any, anything you would push back on uh, in the book? Um, everything from page 47 <laughs> to the end of that chapter, I think. Um, when, sadly enough, so Scott McKnight, he's a, he's a New Testament scholar, right? Mm -hmm. And the weakest part of this book is where he covers verses of the Bible. Yeah, I, I found that, that really good. odd. Yeah. So on Matthew 18, and he uses the example, he says, okay, Matthew 18 is 15 through 17 is the passage where if someone sins against you, you go to them first, then you take two or three witnesses, and then you go to the whole congregation. Um, and he says, that's being used and misapplied to say, you can't take these instances of abuse public. You have to go first to this pastor which has this undesirable and maybe even unreasonable scenario where you have a woman who was abused by a man in a room by herself with that man, you know, of confronting him. And he says, that's just not viable. And so Matthew 18 doesn't apply out it goes. Mm -hmm. What he doesn't do is then replace it with, here's how we maintain the principle of Matthew 18 and accommodate this unique situation. I agree. A woman who is saying the pastor abused me in some way or a child um, should not be in a room alone with that pastor in, in any circumstance. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you can adjust the, the specifics of Matthew 18 and keep the principle that you start small and go large, that you say, is there a way to fix this without a news bulletin, you know, press release that's in the interest of everyone involved, not just the, the accused, but also the person who was wronged, and, it, and it's biblical. So I, I, my suggestion would be, um, if, if step number one doesn't work, you go to that person individually, well, then how about some version of that second step of taking two or three people with you? Um, now, he, he further comments, in cases of sexual abuse, there's typically not a witness, and, and again, that's true. Um, but you can take witnesses to the conversation, you know, who can kind of adjudicate, is this, is this a reasonable, could this have happened? Um, what's the person's response and hold the people in, in place accountable and try to see what can be done um, without the first step being 
let's get up in front of a thousand people and say this is the accusation. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like there's a way to do that without throwing out the entire passage, just because he's correct. It doesn't perfectly fit the situation. It still has a value there as a principle. Um, yeah, two two things on that. I think one, you're exactly right. I felt I felt kind of you know, like I didn't get my money's worth from Scott McKnight on this part because he is a great scholar. I do like a lot of his New Testament stuff. And yeah, it was, you know, the first point that I think of is this, this happens a lot in the church on, you know, a a lot of different topics. And that is this verse has been used for bad things in the past. Therefore, we must ignore what it says. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's not a good strategy. That is never a good strategy. So yes, somebody may have misapplied this is to use it correctly. <laughs> that's exactly. the correct answer. Yeah. It's like, it's almost the assumption of, no, it wasn't misapplied. That's what it does mean. Therefore we shouldn't listen to it. It's like, yeah. no, if it's misapplied, let's correctly apply it. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's kind of how I felt about Matthew 18 and first Timothy. You know, yes. the second, the second part though, is I think the principle of these two passages is actually really important in cases of abuse because there is, you know, there is an encouragement biblically speaking for people to come forward about things that they have had happen to them, whether they're abuse or whether it's just a disagreement of some kind. And, uh, you know, so that is invited. I mean, I think of the passages all over the New Testament about confession and about bringing things to the light. You know, in Ephesians chapter four, if you bring things to the light, that's the only way that things can be healed. Um, things fester in the darkness. And so both, both Matthew 18 applied correctly and then on the next page, when he begins to talk about First uh, Timothy five nineteen, both of those are actually instructions in how to confront. They're not. They're not saying not to confront. That's a misapplication. Yeah. But what they do is they they chart a course for escalation. So here's where I worry about overcorrection: is guilt by accusation is not good in the church. It's not good in society. Um, it's that that's not the society we want to live in. We want to live in a world where, uh, when somebody does something wrong and they're accused of it, we find out what happened and people are punished for what they did wrong. People are restored for what's happened to them, you know, whatever. And, and we're talking a lot more broadly here than just sexual abuse. Yeah. But what, what first Timothy five nineteen do not entertain an accusation against an elder, unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. You know, they talk about that's misapplied because in, cases of abuse, there's not two or three witnesses, there's only one. And so people say, well, if there's not, you know, multiple people that saw it, it's your word against theirs, and you can't bring that complaint. That's actually not what this is saying at all, I don't think. Um, I don't think you would count out a person who is sympathetic, who has listened, who has a concern as well after hearing from someone as one of these witnesses. I think what this does is it protects elders from the spurious kinds of guilt by accusation that we see, you know, happen in today's world. But it also provides a template for active engagement when something bad has happened. So this is a lane of confrontation. But I think the way that the Bible tells us to escalate things one on one, that doesn't work one on several, that doesn't work Bring it before the elders. Of course, here, if you have a charge against the elders, bringing it before the elders. And then, you know, and this is what happened in the Willow Creek case, and they base a lot of their analysis on this, the elders did not listen. And in fact, they did worse than not listen. They, uh, you know, subdued the the stories of the witnesses. They attacked their character. They allowed Bill Hybels to, you know, impugn their character. And so they went to the papers. And in that case, and 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 McKnight agrees with this. I think in that case, that was the only escalation left. And that's what he calls a prophetic escalation. 
What I disagree with, though, is that he says in cases of abuse, though, you can just skip this whole process and go straight to the papers because that is a prophetic voice. I'm just, I'm not sure that's the best way to interpret these verses. It seems more like jettisoning these verses to me. To give him a little credit, I mean, to his point, these verses will not be very effective in a bad church culture. I mean, mm-hmm. that's part of the problem, right? If the two or three guys you bring in are in on the heist, um, then we haven't fixed anything. And, right. and I acknowledge that that is a problem, but they would be very effective in a good church culture, which might be why Jesus and the Spirit through Paul said them. So I would think, you know, we don't want to just ditch them because in some circumstances they haven't worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or you could even say maybe they did work in the sense that, we escalated and it got where it was supposed to get. There was an opportunity before this hit the papers for the people in leadership to do the right thing. And that's the goal. One of the goals of these passages, especially Matthew 18, the goal is reconciliation. And the goal is to give the sinner the opportunity to do the right thing before he's a publican and an outcast. Right. Right. Or Even the elders in, to do the right thing. You know, I think in a lot of these cases, yeah, if the right. elders would have fired the pastor based on the reports that they got uh, and after they investigated and after they went through this, things would have been better. Um, you know, so in some of these cases, it was a matter of, yeah, the elders really or the board or whoever really should have done a better job from the get go. Um, and in some cases, they did have an opportunity and they didn't. And, you know, those are the situations I think they're reacting to. But in some cases, they didn't even have an opportunity. Um, And so then at that point, when everybody's caught by surprise, that's when you see people really go into uh, cover up mode, which is terrible. And that's on them. That's on the board and everything. Uh, But I think in some of these cases, there were definitely opportunities earlier in this that the elders should have been more receptive and they probably should have fired their pastor for what he did. And they decided to cover it up. But this allows for that. This allows for that process of letting, you know, allowing them to do the right thing. And again, we're not talking about cases here where you have an obligation to go to the police. We're talking about, you know, internal dynamics here that arise from one person sinning against another. Um, There are other situations where, you know, when you hear about this, whoever you are, you have an obligation to go tell the authorities. You know, I'm I'm talking about the ones that are not in that category. Yeah. Um, thinking again of those churches in Asia and Revelation, the, the woman who, who taught men to commit adultery, whatever that means, the next verse says, Jesus, Jesus says, I gave her a time for repentance. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, even in that process, he doesn't say I threw her out immediately. Like there was a opportunity for her to repent and do the right thing. And what you have to remember about Romans, or excuse me, Matthew 18, is that one of these days, and maybe a lot of them, you're the sinner. Right. And you want the opportunity to make it right before you become the heathen and the publican. Um, that's what reconciliation is about. Um, and when it doesn't work, or again, I, you could argue that it did work because it not only exposed uh, a crime in the pastor, it exposed an entirely bad eldership, uh, a bad right. leadership culture. Whereas if you had jumped straight to the newspaper, it never actually exposes the culture. It's just got you for that one guy. And we replace him with another guy like him and we go on business as usual. Mm-hmm. This process is a, a real treatment plan for sin. And I just hate to see it diminished. And 
also the fact that we're sinners and people lie. Like right. I, I, I completely understand. I, I let me take that back. I don't completely understand what it's like to be a woman making an accusation and knowing it's your word against somebody with fame and character, you know, reputation on their side, and you having to plead your case with no evidence. I, I can't imagine what that's like. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to correct that problem by saying it's open season for uh, what's one of the Ten Commandments bearing false witness. And it's not something we want in our culture either, that we right. reward bearing false witness. Satan is a slanderer. That's his job. And we don't want to empower him. That's a tool he knows very well. So I, I think we have to strike some kind of healthy balance that I don't know how to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's going to be discernment in every case by case setting, but right. the way that protects the weak and the abused. And also a truth culture has to care about truth. And that means truth about me too, as a church leader. Yeah. That's one of the things I appreciated towards the end of the book is they're talking about a justice culture and, you know, they're saying in a, in a justice culture, people who have been sinned against are listened to, they are protected, they are empathized with. And I think that's exactly right. And I think a lot of the really deep wounds have come, not just through the initial abuse in the church, but but afterwards not being listened to, you know, not being given a chance to uh, make a case, not being given a chance to share what has happened. And but, but I think to summarize what we've been saying, or at least I, I, I think probably the best way to think about this is that systems like uh, Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy chapter 5 actually provide an environment for people to be heard, for people to be listened to, for people to be protected, and at yeah. the same time provides that case-by-case analysis that, that's required to make good decisions, wise decisions about each individual case. And, you know, that's back to the group versus the individual tension. The, the overcorrection here is to go with these big group narratives that if something looks like it might have happened, then it definitely happened and the perpetrator should be punished. Uh, that's not where we want to be either. Um, and so I think I think these systems actually allow for us, you know, it's pretty wise that they were included here um, in the Bible, you know, may have known something about the situations we'd find ourselves in. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, these these systems allow us to do justice in the church and to both people. The the systems remind us that the enemy is Satan. Mm-hmm. Like the abuser is not the enemy. He is trapped in sin and it's going to destroy him in the same way that it's harming the people he's abused. The enemy is sin and Satan. And if there's no way to protect the weak without jettisoning this dangerous person, then we'll jettison that dangerous person. If he's impenitent, we will protect the weak. But the actual ideal scenario is to recover both the victim and the victimizer from sin and to reconcile the world to Christ. That's the business we're in. Uh, in one of those church discipline passages, I want to say it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says that you know, sometimes you can go and you can gain a brother. You know, it's, it's possible that you can reach out, and you, Satan doesn't always have to win. That's the story of the New Testament, and I, I don't want us to forget that as mm-hmm. much as I want us to remember the importance of protecting those who need protecting. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And even in the passages where the person is excommunicated in 1 Corinthians 5, 
the goal is for handing them over to Satan to destroy the flesh um, yeah. and to be brought again to repentance. And so, you know, there's different ways. And I think we'd have to do a different podcast to talk about, you know, well, if this happens, how should this person, you know, yeah. be, what, what does it look like? Can a person even be restored, you know, from that to ministry or just to a church member or whatever? And there's definitely a big spectrum of things that we could talk about there. But yeah, we don't want to lose sight that in the end, it's all about people means it's all about all the people. Um, people involved in all in, in all different places of this. And it, and it requires, I think if I had one final thought for this, for this book, it requires a lot of good people to create a good culture. Um, you know, so whether that's the elders, whether that's the board, whether that's the pastor, uh, it creates a lot of people doing the right thing to create a healthy, good culture. And uh, without that, um, you know, one or two good people trying to do the right thing, are going to be fighting an uphill battle, I think. I agree, except that I just want to add the optimistic note that it takes a lot of people to create a good culture. It only takes one person to start creating a good culture. Mm, that's a great point. You doing the right thing. If you want to change the culture, uh, I'm preaching out of First John right now, Cole. Uh, he who does righteousness is righteous. If you want to be, if you want a righteousness culture, do the right thing. And yeah. that's how you start the ball rolling. And there's no other starting point. And it's going to be unpopular and you're going to be isolated and alone. Um, they might crucify you. That happens to Christians sometimes. That's how it starts. Jesus changed the world by being a decent human being, <laughs> uh, to, yeah. by being the God man, by being Tove, by being good. And that's the model. So I, I think we can do it. And it's contagious if we if we try. That's a great word, man. I think that's exactly right. And that's all we can control, really, is yeah. to do what God has laid it on our hearts to do, to do the right thing, to follow and walk by the Spirit. So I would commend this book. I think this is a great yeah. book. I think a lot of church leaders would benefit from, from reading this. Um, and, and anybody who's thinking about culture would benefit from reading this. And so uh, it's it's one definitely, whether you just listen to this or whether you go out and get it, it's, it's one that, that you'll have good conversations and good thoughts uh, about how God has called us, not just individually, but as a group um, in the church together to function. So I just want Scott McKnight to issue volume two, where he actually covers those passages that he skips over and doesn't cover. So if Scott McKnight could do a uh, constructive case, that would be an improvement. That would be I great. Yeah. So thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.